0: For the past several months we've been going through the book of James and that's the study we want to continue today as we finish a two-part lesson that we started last week called A Tug of War. A Tug of War Part 2 is today. Last week was Part 1. But the theme of our book study through James is called Growing Up for God. These are all about lessons about becoming more like Jesus Christ and so... Today we're going to do that. I'm going to ask you to bear with me today. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to try to do my own slides today. So if you notice that I'm like eight behind, just just go with it. It's all part of the show. So I'm going to try to do my own slides today because uh, I have to help myself stay on track. So um, tug of war part two, we're going to be looking at James 4, 1 to 10, and we'll get to the text here again here in a minute. But did you ever be, have you ever been on the wrong team for anything? Have you ever been on the team you didn't want to be on or... The losing team, unfortunately. Growing up, I don't know if you ever got selected for sports when it was like, you know, time to play outside and kickball and dodgeball, things like that, and you got put on the wrong team. Well, uh, most of us who are sports fans are loyal to one sports team, is it right? Generally speaking, it's kind of how it works, right? And you kind of inherit a sports team from your family. So, my wife is laughing. Do you know what's coming? So, I have been a Yankees fan because my dad is a Yankees fan. I grew up, I grew up as a Michigan Wolverine fan for a couple reasons. My dad rooted for Michigan Wolverines because he served ministry there. And I was born in Michigan, so it just seemed like a natural fit. And ever since I was young, we cheered for the University of Michigan, especially the football team. And so right around 13 is when I got really interested in Michigan football. And I became kind of a diehard fan. And honestly, it was fun. It was fun being a Michigan fan. And uh, when I was nine, we moved from Iowa to Pennsylvania, and and I was a really big Michigan fan growing up in Penn State country, and that was fun. I don't want to make any enemies today, but for a long time, we owned the Penn State Nittany Lions. We won like 10 years in a row, I think. And so it was fun going to school as a Michigan fan in Penn State country. It was just fun being a Michigan fan. And so God called me to ministry in 2008. Guess where? To Michigan. I was a pretty excited guy. I was going to ministry, no I was, I was going to serve Jesus uh, on the campuses there, but I also got to be in the state of Michigan, which is where the Michigan football team is of course, and, and I was excited because I could go to a few games and, you know, increase my fandom a little bit, um, so I was excited. But what happened, as soon as I went into ministry, and I don't know exactly why this is, maybe I'm Jonah being thrown off the ship today, but uh, Michigan started to become pretty bad at football. They got a new coach in 2008, I believe it was. That's the exact year that I moved to Michigan. And he was a pretty dynamic coach, so everybody was excited. And uh, he had built up a couple other programs, and people thought he was a great coach. And so Michigan's a great school. It seemed like a great fit. But it wasn't a great fit. This guy came in and really, really struggled. He struggled to even get to 500, like get as many wins as you get losses. And for Michigan, that's not the bar that we had set. We usually went to great bowl games, and we were kind of right there in the national championship discussion at the end of the year, and now we were barely making it to bowl games. And they gave this guy three years. You don't get a long leash at Michigan if you're not winning. So they gave him three years, and he wasn't turning it around, so out the door. Out the door. His name was Rich Rodriguez, and he wasn't a Michigan guy, so we thought, well, maybe that's the problem. We'll go and get a Michigan guy, a guy that knows the culture. So instead of getting a dynamic coach, we got just a Michigan man who knew the culture, and we brought him in, and he did well his first season. He got like 10 wins, and it was like, okay, we're back. We got our Michigan guy. And then the next two or three or four seasons went right down to the toilet again. And uh, Michigan wasn't doing well, and we kept losing every year to our rivals. Michigan State and Ohio State, and that's not a good thing when you're a Michigan fan, and so on, on the radar was this coach that everybody kind of wanted, but he wasn't really available. He was in the pros, and his name was Jim Harbaugh. Anyone know who that is? And we kept looking at this guy because he had both. He was dynamic and a really good coach, and he was a Michigan guy. He was the quarterback for Michigan back in the day. So it was like, man, if he ever became available, that would be like the Cinderella, you know, like that the slipper would fit. And so one year, Jim Harbaugh didn't renew his contract and he was available. And you, you know what, Michigan did? They scooped in, they got this guy and said, You're the man. And they gave him the keys to the city, they gave him a massive contract, and they said, Now it's back. We got our Michigan guy. He's a great coach, and it's going to be fun. And I was pretty excited because Michigan was going to turn the corner. So maybe some of you guys know the rest of the story. He has not turned the corner at all. In fact, he may be the worst of the three. Um, He's like 2-5 and this year, and every year we lose to the Buckeyes. Every year we struggle against Michigan State and Penn State. And it stopped being fun, being a Michigan fan. And I asked my wife the other day, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit serious too. I said, "Um, am I bound to Michigan for the rest of my life? Like, do I have to cheer for this team for the rest of my life? Like, how does this thing work? And she kind of rolled her eyes because my wife is a Detroit Lions fan. And uh, she goes, basically, you know nothing about losing, do you? She Because <laughs> the Lions, they lose every year. They're the lovable losers in football. So uh, she basically told me, in not so many words, you're stuck. You're stuck. You're a Michigan fan till, till the end. So uh, hopefully we'll turn it around someday. But did you, have you ever been on the wrong team? Isn't it frustrating to be on the losing side? It's not fun to cheer for the losing team. Well, today we're going to look at, kind of turning the corner now, to something serious, we're going to look at something today that has the potential to put us on the wrong team. And it's a tug of war part two from James chapter four. If you have your Bibles, join us there. And we're going to look at the text. We're going to read the passage from last week because it's included. And then we're going to look at our new passage this week, starting in verse one. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. We continue our mini series, part two of A Tug of War today, by looking or continuing to look at two huge problems in the church. Last week we looked at problem number one. Today we're going to look at problem number two, and we're going to follow both of the lessons with the solution because there's one huge solution James gives us. So let's give ourselves a recap a little bit before we go forward. Last week, we looked at problem number one, which was selfishness and greed. Selfishness and greed. Let's read the first paragraph again that talks about this. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Last week's problem was they weren't loving one another. They were so worried about getting what they wanted out of this life that they were fighting, they were quarreling, they were coveting. They were asking God to satisfy their pleasures. They weren't worried about anyone else. And if you know what the scriptures speak We're supposed to love, right? We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then second is love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Or I saw an interesting acronym the other day. Actually, CSU posted an Instagram with the acronym JOY, J-O-Y. And it simply said, Jesus, Others, You. And I thought that was just a brilliant acronym for how to remember LOVE. And if you know John 15, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The pretty simple equation is when we love, we get joy. We get God's full joy. So Jesus, others, you is kind of the way to remember that. But the, James, the church James is writing to did not remember that. They were not on board with loving one another. They were selfish and greedy. And it was a really sad thing to think about. And that was last week's problem. But unfortunately, there's another problem. There's another really big problem. And this big problem that we're going to look at today is infidelity to the Lord. Infidelity to the Lord. Listen to the paragraph we're going to focus on today. James says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Today, we're going to look at what perhaps may be the single biggest sin problem in the American church. This might be number one by quite a bit, actually. What I believe the number one biggest sin problem in the American church is this problem we're going to look at today, infidelity to the Lord. And the way he sets it up, we read verse 4, but you need to remember verse 3 because verse 3 sets up verse 4. He says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You notice they're not worried about the kingdom of God. They're not worried about loving their neighbor. They're worried about their own passions, their own desires. And so even their prayers are centered around themselves. And this is where James says right after that, you adulterous people. The problem we're going to look at today is actually the opposite of a problem that many of us grew up with about 25 to 50 years ago in the church. When I was growing up, there was a vicious problem plaguing the church, and we called it legalism. Anyone ever heard that term? Legalism. Legalism. Legalism was all around the church 25, 50 years ago, maybe even more recent than that. But when I was growing up, it was a vicious problem in the church. Legalism basically is a bunch of man-made rules that the church holds Christians to and basically says, if you want to be righteous, you will do these things. You will hold to these rules. And if you don't, then we're going to question your righteousness and your salvation because we think these things are really important. And now we call it legalism, where back in the day it was Christianity. But now we've kind of come out of that and we kind of know better. And I'm going to give you a list of things that were around in the church, at least when I grew up and maybe when you grew up as well. And I'm sure they're hanging on to some degree. But some of these things that I grew up with were basically this. Do not drink. Christians don't drink. And the Bible doesn't say Christians don't drink. It does say don't get drunk with wine but it never says do not drink in the Bible. So as long as you can drink without getting drunk, you're, you're not in sin. But the, I think that the method was to keep people away from drunkenness. So we thought, well, if we get them to not drink, they'll never get drunk, and therefore everyone will be in a better position. So we basically made a rule that said Christians don't drink. And if you drink, you've got a problem. And uh, you're, not in, you're not following Jesus Christ. Here was another one. No dancing for a while. Christians don't dance because dancing can lead to another immoral thing. And if we take dancing out of the picture, we also take that immoral thing out of the picture, so therefore, no dancing. Christians don't dance. And if you dance, again, there's some kind of huge problem. But if you look at the scripture, especially in the Psalms, David danced all the time unto the Lord. And the scriptures never say no dancing, does it? It's nowhere in scripture. Not going to movie theaters. Christians don't go to movie theaters. For a long time, no Christian that I was around in my circles could go to a movie theater. It was against the law, against the rules. And I don't really know where that came from. I I remember hearing a couple of reasons for why that was. Number one is we don't want to give to corrupt Hollywood companies. But that didn't make any sense because we were allowed to go to Blockbuster and rent the movies. Uh, someone else told me that if you go to a movie theater and someone sees you coming out of a movie theater, that... Isn't a very wholesome movie, you could cause that person to stumble? And it was like, what? So none of these rules made any sense, but that was kind of the thing that I grew up in. I didn't go to a movie till I was 18 years old. Because Christians don't go to movie theaters. We rented movies all the time. I don't really know what the difference was. But uh, couldn't go to movie theaters. Here's another one. Wear the proper clothes. Wear the proper church clothes. On Sunday especially, wear the right clothes. Look like you got it together. And so... We had to wear kind of the Sunday's best there on Sunday morning. And again, it was a little consistent because we had a Sunday night church. And I remember the laws for Sunday night and Sunday morning weren't the same. You could wear a little bit more relaxed on Sunday night. It was kind of like business casual on Sunday night, but Sunday's best on Sunday morning. But you had to wear the right clothes. Sundays, you could have no fun on Sundays. So Sundays were for worship and taking naps and spending time with family, anything else is a no-go. So we don't have any fun on Sundays. We don't go to the mall, we don't do anything. we could watch football, probably that was fun. but uh, we couldn't do we couldn't have a lot of fun on Sundays. I guess because the Sunday was thought to be the new Sabbath and therefore the way we observe Sabbath is we have no fun on Sabbath. so therefore no fun on Sundays. at least that's the train I understood. Uh, no rocky music. Christians don't listen to anything with a beat. If it's got a beat, it must be from the devil so, no rocky secular music, no rocky Christian music, because it's evil. And yes, I'm, I'm speaking these, about these a little bit in jest today, but these were serious things. And there's a, there's a whole bunch more that I'm not even going to mention of things that Christians were supposed to adhere to because they were right. And if you did them, you were righteous or seen as righteous. And if you didn't, we kind of question your salvation. Legalism, interestingly enough, I believe, started with the right spirit. I believe if I was a church leader back in the day when legalism started to become a thing, I believe the spirit of legalism was to keep us from the problem that we find today, our second problem here in James. These things had the proper spirit to keep us from infidelity to the Lord. But legalism is antichrist. It's anti-Christ. Not because it's wrong to have personal convictions about these things, because it's not. It's not wrong if you have a personal conviction or your family has a personal conviction against these things and you hold to these things. I don't want anyone feeling bad for that reason, okay? It's not wrong to have a personal conviction about these things or anything else related to the Christian faith. But it's wrong when the church mandates it. It's wrong when the church acts as if these are the commandments of God and you have to adhere to these things or you're not righteous. And what actually happened is we actually started to substitute these things up here for the actual commandments of God. God gave us a whole list of commandments, did he not? It said, these are the things that I want. These are the things that are most important to me. And we said, well, we think this list is actually a little bit better. So I don't remember hearing a lot about the commandments. I remember hearing a whole lot of chatter about these kinds of things. And we were actually substituting the commandments of God for these kinds of things. And you could tell how anti-Christ that is. So we weren't going to movie theaters. But we were slandering our neighbor. Do you see the little subtle big thing that was happening there? The devil was getting us to trade one for the other. Holding to man-made rules instead of Christ's written commandments. And... It's a really, really bad problem. It's a really, really bad trade. So 25, 30 years ago, thank the Lord, the church began to recognize this problem, probably because Christians became frustrated. They were ste- We were seen as stuffed shirts and people of no fun, and people started to question in the church, why are we holding to these things? And no one really gave us a good answer. It was always, well, it's always been this way. It's- we've always held on to these things, and... That wasn't good enough anymore for us. So we protested against legalism, most of us. We did. We protested and said, why are we holding to these things? We don't need to hold to these things anymore. And we protested. And it was good that we protested. It was. Because this lifestyle is not pleasing to Jesus because he never asked for it. Man-made rules can never and will never make anybody righteous. Nor will they ever please our Lord Jesus. If we come up with a list and we hold to a list and say, there, God, here's what you asked for. We talked about on Wednesday, we're kind of like Cain. Cain gave God whatever he wanted to give God. Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not because Cain gave him whatever he wanted to give him instead of what God wanted. That's kind of what we're talking about here. So the church, Christians protested. And we came out of legalism. And it was a good thing because for the first time, the church started loosening these restrictions on their people. And for the first time in a long time, Christians felt free, liberated. I remember this being a very liberating time in the Christian religion. We could dress more relaxed. We could watch and listen to things normal people watch and listen to. We could do whatever we wanted to on Sundays. It felt great. No more legalism, no more claustrophobic feeling in the church. I remember that being a very liberating, freeing time in the church. It was finally great to be a Christian. But there was another huge problem brewing that hardly anybody saw coming. In our efforts to free ourselves from this man-made religion, we didn't see the devil's crafty snares that he had been laying down for many years. You see, the devil had an ingenious plan. He knew we would eventually figure out that legalism was wrong and it wasn't pleasing to God and it wasn't giving us joy. So for all of those things, he knew we would figure that out one day. And So therefore, he was setting new traps. New traps for maybe dozens of years. And these new traps were laying in wait for for all of us so that one day we would step out of the frying pan and into the fire. You see the devil, he's kind of like a good billiards player. Anybody play pool? Any pool? Yeah, billiards players, guys? Pool at all? No? Yeah, kind of like me. Uh, The devil's kind of like a good billiards player. Unlike me, I'm not a very good billiards player. I just try to get any ball in any pocket at any time. I don't even care if it's my ball or the white ball. I just want a ball in and make it look like I know what I'm doing. But good billiards players, so I've heard, are not only concerned with getting their ball in on the current shot, they're actually seeking to set up their next shot. while. Is any, can, can anybody validate that? They're seeking to set up their next shot while they hit the current shot in, so the cue ball is in a good position to get another ball in. At least, again, so I've been told. I've never been that good. But the devil's kind of like that. He's kind of like that as a good billiards player. He was working on his current shot, and he was setting up his next shot, shot as well. And hardly anybody recognized this devil's next trap. And this next trap, unfortunately, was going to be even deadlier than the one we were currently in. See, the devil knew we were going to be so frustrated with man-made rules that once we began to run away from them, we would run so far and so fast to liberate ourselves from legalism that we would run straight for the other cliff and jump off the ledge without any recognition of what we were jumping toward. Our second problem is a huge one. And millions of Christians don't even know this new trap has been masterfully, masterfully laid down by the devil. They're only concerned with never going back to the first trap. And many, tragically, have been trapped in this new devilish snare for many years, and they don't even know it. Our second problem is infidelity to Jesus. Infidelity to the Lord I looked up the word infidelity, maybe that's a word you know, maybe it's not a word you know, but I looked up the word infidelity in the dictionary online, and I found two definitions. Two definitions for the word infidelity. The first one is the one that I expected to find. It said the action or state of being unfaithful to a spouse. The action or state of being unfaithful to your spouse, that's what infidelity means. And that's the definition that I expected. But there was a second definition that I didn't expect to pop up, and this is what it says unbelief in a particular religion, especially Christianity. Isn't that interesting? That's a secular website dictionary that I found. It said, unbelief in a particular religion, especially Christianity. Now, when I read that, my heart began to break and I began to tear up a little bit because I didn't expect that would come up in a secular dictionary. Because even the world calls unfaithfulness to the Lord... Infidelity or adultery. Isn't that interesting? Even the world calls infidelity an adultery when we're acting unfaithful to the Lord. Problem number two is infidelity or unfaithfulness to our Lord Jesus. And James uses a very harsh sounding word so we understand the grossness of of this sin. He says, You adulterous people. What James is about to say to us today is not just a sin issue. As in, we need to take a few steps to stop doing it because it's kind of bad. James is telling us today that if we're involved in this sin, we're acting in the most heinous way we could possibly act because we're cheating on our Lord Jesus. It's as if we're sleeping around on our spouse. Only our spouse, spiritually speaking, is Jesus Christ. How can this be? How can this be? What is the issue that's causing Christians to commit spiritual adultery against their Lord? It has to be something huge and gross. It has to be. Something like homosexuality or murder. Actual murder. Or idol worship, right? Something massive has to be going on for God to call it adultery. It has to be big. It has to be bad. It has to be bold. Because that's a really strong term. Well, On the surface, to us at least, it seems much more benign than any of those sins. The issue that we're going to learn today is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Wait, that's the issue? Friendship with the world? That's the sin we're talking about today? Being friendly with the world? James says that if we're acting friendly with the world, then we're committing adultery with our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the second and even deadlier trap that the devil has laid down for the modern church. And this is so heinous to God that he calls our friendship with the world spiritual adultery. And if that wasn't bad enough, James goes on to say that your friendship with the world is making you practical enemies of God. This is a hard one to preach today, guys. This is a hard one. This is one that if I could have dodged it, I would have dodged it because it's not fun to preach, but it's, it's necessary because this is a really big problem. And we need to pause here and think for a moment about what James just told us, that friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. If we are friends with the world, we are committing adultery against our Lord Jesus and we have made ourselves practical enemies of God. Yikes. 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 But we need to ask a couple questions here first, okay? Before we move on, we need to make sure we understand exactly what's happening here. Question number one we need to ask and we need to answer today is, what is friendship with the world? What is he talking about? What is friendship with the world and why is it so bad? Because it doesn't sound bad to me when I first read that. Friendship with the world does not sound like a gross, big, heinous sin. So what is it, James, and why is it so bad? Let's answer that question. And question number two is this. Can Christians actually become practical enemies with God? Can we actually become enemies of God or is that just some sort of scare tactic to get us away from sin and so he's saying using hyper hyperbolic language and exaggerating a little bit or can we actually become enemies of God? And we're going to answer those two questions today. And we need to keep both of these questions in the context of the entire scripture. Okay? Because as Pastor Mill has said so eloquently, the Bible is one message, and it never disagrees with itself. Okay? So let's handle these questions carefully. Let's answer these today, but let's handle them carefully. Number one, what is friendship with the world? What is it? What does it look like? What is James talking about? Well, we know from Scripture that we're to follow our leader, right? We're going to follow Jesus Christ. He's our leader, so whatever he does, whatever he says is right, and we should follow it. We should follow our leader, Jesus. We should imitate our Father, God. That's what it says in Scripture. And John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, doesn't it? That's what it says in my Bible. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to the earth to die for the world that he might save them from their sins. You could say very clearly, very bluntly, very honestly, and you would be right, God loves the world. He loves the world. And this is a common thread we find throughout Scripture. God loves the world and the people in the world. And even now, the gospel is being preached to sinners all over this world to draw people to Jesus Christ. Guys, if God doesn't love the world, we're all doomed. If God doesn't love the world, as in the people of the world, we're all doomed. But thankfully, he does, right? Thankfully, God loves the people of the world so much, he didn't spare his son when we needed him in his sacrifice. So James can't be speaking about the people of the world when he says friendship with the world is enmity with God. He can't be talking about the people because we're supposed to follow our leader and our Lord loves the people of the world. So what's he talking about? And I believe James has to be referring to the world's pattern and the world's direction. He must be telling us today that friendship with the world's stuff and the world's ways and the world's desires is practical adultery to Jesus and practical enmity with God. If we are friendly with the world, as in we cherish and chase its stuff, then we're against God and we're against his will. How do we know this? We know this from looking at the rest of Scripture. Actually, one of my dad's, Pastor Mel's favorite passages in all of Scripture, John, 1 John 2, 15-17, says this very thing. He says, Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the, loves the Father, excuse me, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There it is again. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see the wrong team coming up? So James and John are syncing up here with what they're telling us. If we love the world, we love its stuff, we love its treasures, we love its desires, we are not lining up with the Lord. Because the world and the Lord are at odds with one another. They hate each other. Did you know that? The Lord hates the pattern of this world And the world hates the pattern of our Lord Jesus. Can anybody else validate that, being a Christian long enough? The Lord hates the pattern of this world, and the world hates the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're at odds with one another. Big deal. Big deal. We have fun here, right? Why shouldn't we? Live, love, laugh, right? Make memories. Soak up the sun, right? I mean, we used to be in the suffocating legalistic Christianity where it restricted our joy as Christians and we finally came out of that evil. And we never want to go back. So now we can enjoy all of God's and the world's bounties, right? As long as they're not sinful, isn't everything just for us to enjoy? And this is where we need to be very careful because James is reminding us today of one very important thing. He's reminding us of this. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Did you know that? If we are children of God and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have a home somewhere else, in heaven, with our God. In fact, the Scriptures say we are now citizens of heaven and no longer citizens of the earth. The Scriptures say that we are now strangers and aliens and pilgrims in a foreign land, because of our new union with Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you notice two things there? We're strangers, we're aliens, we're sojourners on the world. And there's the tug of war. Abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. If we're loving the world and we're loving its stuff, somebody's confused. If we are loving the world and loving its stuff, somebody is confused. God's confused because he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, the world, to the kingdom of light, heaven, so we can live with God for the rest of eternity. That's what it says in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, the world, to the Kingdom of Light Heaven. So God has to be confused, looking at this. And we are confused because the world used to be our practical Egypt, like the children of Israel. The world was treating us like say slaves. they were abusing us in the name of their own glory and their own greatness. And when Jesus came, He delivered us from our practical Egypt, and He brought us into the wilderness with Him. Does this sound familiar? To journey toward our promised land, which is heaven. So God brought us out of the world. He brought us into the wilderness, which is kind of where we are right now. All Christians are in the wilderness. We're still in the world, but we're journeying from the world to heaven, and it feels much like the wilderness. And we're all waiting to go to our promised land, heaven. So when you and I act as if the world is our home and the place that we want to soak up all its treasures and its desires, we're actually acting like we hate God's plan for us. To make us citizens of heaven. To save us from the world, from its evil, sinful ways. We're acting like we hate that plan. And we have to realize today, if we haven't yet, that the world is not on the Lord's side. The world, and everything it stands for, is not on the Lord's team. And when you and I choose to love the world and its stuff, we're choosing to not love the Lord And by choosing the world, we're actually lining up against God. The wrong team. When we say yes to the world, we say no to the pattern of Jesus. It's as simple as James can say it today. When we say yes to the pattern, that should say pattern, not pattern. When we say yes to the pattern of this world, we say no to the pattern of Jesus. Because the world and Jesus, they hate each other. See, the world is cursed in God's eyes. And he destined the earth for his pure destructive fire and wrath. That's what 2 Peter 3 says. That the world is awaiting God's wrath and fire because of their God-hating lifestyle. And the world literally hung our Lord Jesus on the cross. The world actually literally hung our Lord Jesus on the cross because they hated his pattern, his lifestyle, so much. So we cannot and we must not be friends with the world and friends with what practically hates our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a non-negotiable. If we love the world, then we practically hate Jesus. That's what he's telling us today. If we claim to be Christians while we give our love to this world, then we have fallen into the second deadly trap of the devil because it's an impossible equation to love Jesus while we love the world. So friendship with the world means we we love it here. We want to get as much stuff as we can from this place because we think it's great stuff. And when we do that, we practically cheat on our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, who sees all, God, he sees everything. We just went through the attributes of God. God sees everything. He knows everything. He watches his people daily cheat on his son, who he sent to the earth to die on a cross to save us from the world. He made us citizens of heaven so that we can live with God for all of eternity. And I want you to think about that today. Think about what it must appear to to God to watch us cheat on his son. The very son that spilled his blood for us on the cross of Calvary. God has to watch us cheat. Love the world instead of loving his son. We're going to come back to friendship with the world in a little bit, but let's answer question number two very quickly. Question number two is, can Christians become practical enemies of God? Is this is this possible? Can Christians become God's enemies? Is there real danger here? Is there real teeth to this warning? Again, the Bible is one message, guys. So we can't make it say something different than the rest of scripture, but the simple answer is yes. Yes. Because this is another constant theme in scripture. In fact, the world, the Lord would not call it adultery if he was speaking to people that he didn't save to people that didn't belong to him. For those girls I used to date in my younger days, in my early 20s, that I never married, that are now married to somebody else, I don't consider those girls adulterers. I never call them adulterers. They never married me. I never married them. But if my own spouse was with another man and my wife is completely, entirely faithful, but I would consider that adultery because she's my wife. She's my wife. That's what adultery is. It's when someone who's with you in a covenant relationship is unfaithful and infidel to you. And that's why the Lord is so constantly angry with the Israelites back in the Old Testament. That's why he's so angry in the Old Testament. It's not, he's not angry because they have said no to having a covenant relationship with him. That's not why God was so angry. He's angry because they said yes to having a covenant relationship with him. And then they chased other gods and other lovers, spiritually speaking. That's why God is so angry and so jealous in the Old Testament. They were cheating on him with other gods. Where we often get ourselves into trouble with studying the Bible is when we perform what I call theological gymnastics with the word of God to prove things we either can't properly explain or we like to nullify things that are difficult to hear, kind of like this one today. I don't really like to hear that. I don't really want to believe that's true. So let's just, let's just get around that. Let's find a way to slip out of this so it's not really true that we're committing adultery. It's not really true that we're making ourselves en- enemies with God. But simply put, if we are Christians and we say we love the Lord and at the same time are practical friends with the world, we're cheating on our Lord Jesus. And I hope you understand this today. Cheating on Jesus is so much worse Than a claim to never love him. Cheating on him is so much worse than a claim to never love him. Atheists, we probably think, are the worst category of people on the earth. Right? The atheists are the worst. If I could think of the worst sort of people, it's people who say there is no God, I don't believe in him. But they're not. Atheists are not the worst sort of people. People like Judas are. People who claim to love and follow Jesus Christ. But they constantly cheat on him without repentance. Adulterers are far worse than people who never marry us. Someone claims to love me and cheats on me. Other people claim to not love me and they back it up. God's gospel never tears down the same kingdom it's seeking to build up. If we are claiming to be saved and we're on God's team, Scripture makes it clear, you got to act like it. you got to act like it. If this is what you claim to be, your lifestyle has to follow suit. So if we act contrary to God's plan, and we claim to be Christians, we're not ready for Judgment Day. We are not ready for Judgment Day. Judgment Day is actually going to be terrifying for all those who say, Jesus is my Lord, while they live a lifestyle of spiritual adultery. And God's gospel trains us better than that, guys. It says if we're saved and if we love Jesus, then Jesus is the Lord of our lives, and we will submit to him no matter how little we understand it or how difficult it is. So let's be crystal clear today, okay? Adultery with the Lord will damn us if we don't repent of it. No one who lives a lifestyle of practical infidelity to the Lord as a practice of their lives is getting to the kingdom of God. Because God will not be mocked by anybody. We cannot say, Lord, I love you, and our lifestyle cheats on him constantly. That's an attempt to mock God. God, I love you. It'd be the same if we did it to a spouse. I love you. Of course I love you. You're mine. I'm yours. And we're living this unfaithful secret relationship with another person. That would be an attempt to mock that person. And God will not have anybody like that in his kingdom. If we say we love the Lord but we don't prove it with our lives, we are going to spend an eternity away from the Lord. In a place called hell. Destined for people exactly like that. And I have to say this today, not because I want to, but because... James says it, and because more importantly, God's Word says it. Let's lighten the mood just a little bit, but I want you to picture on the last day teams are chosen. Let's say dodgeball, okay, because I played dodgeball growing up. Uh, recess, we would play dodgeball from time to time, and for some reason I always got put on the worst team. But dodgeball, let's say in the last team, there are two teams being chosen, dodgeball teams, okay? On this side are a lot of really strong, athletic people okay and for a while you feel pretty good about your team but then you take a look at the other team and on the other side is the almighty god you're on your team and you're feeling pretty good until you take a look at the other team who has the almighty god do you think he'd be pretty accurate with a dodgeball do you think he'd be pretty powerful with a dodgeball and yes it's an attempt to lighten the mood just a little bit but i want you to imagine the teams lining up on the last day and you find yourself against God. Verse 5 says, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word jealousy has a bad connotation today, doesn't it? If you find out someone is jealous, it's like, oh man, you're just being petty and you're being selfish. It has a bad connotation today, but did you know the word jealousy is only wrong when it's baseless? Or when it pertains to people and things that we have no rights to? That's the only time jealousy is wrong, is when it's baseless, there's no foundation for it, or it pertains to someone that doesn't belong to us at all. But when jealousy is based on proven infidelity to someone who belongs to us, in a covenant relationship, then not only is it not wrong, it's a perfectly just and right feeling to have. And God has righteous jealousy towards us when we give our love and give our allegiance to the world instead of him. Jesus is jealous and God is jealous too when we cheat on his son. And shouldn't he be? He sent his son to die for us on the cross. We said yes to a covenant relationship with our Lord Jesus. Shouldn't God be angry and jealous when we don't stay faithful to his son? Or listen to the second commandment given to us in Exodus chapter 20. Second commandment ever given to the people of God. And I don't know if you can read that up there, but it says this. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And there it is again. Making stuff with your hands and bowing down to it will make God, jealous, because you and I belong to him through Jesus Christ. And you could tell in Exodus 20, God considers spiritual adultery to be hatred against him. Who wouldn't? Wouldn't adultery feel like hatred if someone committed it against you? Wouldn't that feel like hatred? And let's flip it around. Wouldn't faithfulness feel like love? See, as we learned last week, God gave us something profound called the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit he comes inside of us and he teaches us and he trains us and he protects us and he watches over us and he makes sure we understand the scriptures so that we go the right way and he gave us the Holy Spirit to conquer the devil with and when you and I neglect the ministry the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit and we continue to give our love to the flesh God gets jealous and angry so much so he wants to take sides against us on the last day if it continues. Can you imagine on the last day God being against you? We need to move fast here, but I'm going to read a couple passages from Revelation because I think it's going to help us understand this. In Revelation 19, 11-16, this is a prophecy of what's to come. Listen to Revelation 19, 11-16. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is going to declare war on all those who hated him. Now if you didn't live in America and a country like america declared war on your country that would probably bring you a little bit of terror because of how big and strong and powerful we are right on the last day jesus is going to declare war on all those who hated him do you think he'll win in revelation 6 verses 12 it says When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The rich, the mighty, the powerful, the kings of the world are so terrified that they're on the wrong team, they're asking the mountains to fall on top of them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And this is not a fairy tale. This is real. This is a real prophecy of what's to come, and we have to be on the right team. Make no mistake about it, if you and I are enemies of the Lord Jesus on the last day, we're doomed. We're doomed. The terror of that day is going to be off the charts, and there's going to be no hope for us. Even the mountains don't want to associate with us. Even the rocks and the mountains don't want to stand next to us. They'll run away from us. But, aren't you thankful for the grace of God? That just when it looks like we're going to be doomed for all eternity because we all struggle to some degree with this. I know I do. And we will be doomed if we continue in it. God comes along with his great and his marvelous grace and makes sure that we are given every chance and every tool at his disposal to come out of this unfaithfulness, come out of this adultery and be given forgiveness and reconciliation to him. There's this passage in Hosea chapter 2 that I just absolutely love. If you guys have never read the book of Hosea, man, make time to read it. I need to give a little bit of background in this book, Hosea. God has this prophet named Hosea, okay, and Hosea is a really godly man. And he says to his prophet, Hosea, Hosea, I want you to do something for me. And what he's going to ask Hosea is going to be very, very difficult. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. I want you to marry a prostitute. Because your relationship with that prostitute is going to symbolize my relationship with my current people, the Israelites. So Hosea listens to him. He obeys him, and he marries a notorious prostitute named Gomer. He marries her. She's notorious for being a prostitute. And it's not long before Gomer acts unfaithfully to Hosea. Because that's kind of her character. And now in chapter 2, Hosea has a choice. He can either cast Gomer away and say, Get lost, you loser. I'm going to find someone better than you. Or he can take her back because she's a prostitute. She was unfaithful to him, so he could take her back. And in verse 14 of chapter 2, we find something a little shocking. Now, we're reading about Hosea and Gomer, but the bigger story is about God and his people Israel. And it says in verse 14, I believe I have this on the screen, Therefore behold, God speaking to the nation Israel, Hosea speaking to his wife Gomer, I will allure her. Or you can actually translate that word, woo. I will woo her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time that she came out of the land of Egypt. Hosea not only takes his unfaithful wife back, he actually wins her back with all his affection With all his love, with all his creativity, he goes after his unfaithful wife and says, Not only will I take you back, I'm going to win you back as if we were first meeting each other and I wanted to marry you. And that's representing God's relationship with Israel. Not only will I take you back, I will win you back. I will bring you into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to you. And I will make it like the very first time we came together when you came out of Egypt and your sins were forgiven and you were free from slavery. That's how I'm going to make this relationship. I will restore her with my full love and forgiveness. Guys, and such is the message and the goal today. We cannot and we must not continue loving the world and cheating on our Lord Jesus Christ. And this problem has to stop immediately. This is not a small deal. This is a massive, massive deal. I mean, what advice would you give to someone who said, I, I'm committing adultery against my spouse? What advice would you give that person? Wouldn't it simply be this? Stop. Stop it. Repent. Beg for forgiveness and turn your life around. Right now. Not tomorrow. Not in a couple weeks. Stop this adulterous relationship right now. You see, grace, I think sometimes we're confused about God's grace. It's not a blanket forgiveness. For practicing adulterers. Okay, it's not like, ah, I know you're committing adultery, but my grace will cover it, so just be who you are. That's not what God's grace says. Grace is the power to live differently and to stop being adulterers. That's why God's grace comes to people, so that you can be who you aren't right now. You can have the power to stand up to the infidelity of the devil and say, no longer, no more. You could be restored and you could start acting faithfully to the Lord once again. So the Lord is coming to each of us today with forgiveness and grace and efforts that we finally cease our adulterous relationship with the world and we come back to Jesus where we come to him for the first time and we finally give him our entire selves, all our love, all our devotion, all our faithfulness. And this message is sent to humble us today so that we realize what friendship with the world looks like in God's eyes. So that we do whatever necessary to repent of it and never ever flirt again with infidelity to our Lord. Or to use our tug of war analogy, the Lord is tightening our grip today, okay? He's tightening our grip on the rope today against our sinful flesh. He's strengthening our arms and strengthening our resolve to fight the sinful flesh to the death. And he's yelling to us all through James 4, Pull! Hug that rope until the flesh is dead. You have the strength and you have the power and you have the tools to do so. And if you and I listen to him today, then suddenly the battle is going to turn in our favor and the flesh is going to begin to lose his grip and lose his footing in this fight. And the Spirit of God will now be in full control of the battle. And he will help us yank that rope across the finish line and have a great victory over the sinful flesh. Now, we've looked at two huge problems, one last week and one this week, and now we have to very quickly move to the solution on the spiritual tug of war. Because James continues and says this in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As with last week, the solution to this war, this fleshly tug of war, is pretty simple. I need and you need God's help. I need closeness to God to both recognize this as a problem and to overcome this problem. And like we did 25, 30 years ago with legalism? Let's call friendship with the world what it is. Let's call it sin. Let's be very blunt about it, okay? It is sin, it's wrong, it's deadly, and it's dangerous. And it's adultery against our Lord Jesus. You see, the devil, he loved legalism because it was a sneaky substitution for the commandments. I'm going to give them this list, and they'll toss this list, and they'll be nowhere near pleasing the Lord Because he knows that no matter what our motive is, if we can replace truth with error, he doesn't care how zealous we are towards legalism. He doesn't care how sincere we are towards legalism. Because living for error will always lead us away from Jesus, will it not? Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of all time. He said, If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, but you must be right. Man had such a way with words. So just as much as legalism was wrong in leading people away from Christ, friendship with the world is just as deadly, if not more so. See, the interesting thing thing about legalism is that maybe, maybe, at least in the beginning, it had the proper spirit behind it, okay? Seriously, I would like to think that before it got really bad, that the leaders of the church had the proper spirit to guide their church in the right direction. Because if someone is desiring to please me, and they simply neglect to listen to what I tell them to do and they do something else, I'm frustrated by that. I am. I'm frustrated by that because... I feel like they're not listening. But at least I feel like I can guide that person towards a proper place and position to please me properly. Because they just need proper direction, proper steering. But James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If our spouse is committing adultery against us, then both the spirit and the practice of their lives is wrong. It's wrong. They don't love us at all. They only love themselves, and they want to please themselves. Do you see why it might be even deadlier than legalism? The spirit is wrong. The practice is wrong. Legalism, at least maybe at the beginning, the spirit was right and the practice was wrong. With adultery, you can't say that. They're both wrong. And this is a masterful, this is a masterful plan of the devil. He took the evil, sinful, selfish desires of our hearts to love the things of the world and he helped us justify him by saying they're not legalism. They're not legalism, therefore they must be right. Legalism was wrong, and this is the opposite of legalism, therefore the opposite of wrong has to be right. At least that's the rationale that he used in my own brain. See, I stood against legalism pretty hard. I stood against legalism hard. My desire, though, was not to please the Lord and to search out his commandments in order to please him. I just wanted to have fun like everybody else was. I didn't want my religion standing in the way anymore of my desires. So we brandished legalism as evil, and it is, and it was, and it always will be. And we used that knowledge to sprint to the complete opposite direction of legalism towards friendship with the world. We went from falling off one cliff to the other. As we mentioned last week, neither legalism nor friendship with the world is proper Christianity, but only loving each other sacrificially as Jesus has loved us. That's the only proper Christianity. And the way to accomplish this is to call friendship with the world what it is. It's evil, it's adultery, and it's making us practical enemies with God. And once we do, once we call it what it is, once we humble ourselves and go to God and ask for His forgiveness, ask for His healing and overcoming this, you know what He says? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will what? He will exalt you. He won't rub your nose in the sin. He will say, I'm here to help. I want to win you back. I don't want this to happen anymore. I don't want you against me anymore. I want us together. I'm going to give you the grace that you need to overcome this. Come and humble yourself and come to me for help and healing and I will pick you up. And I will dust you off and I will give you the strength to overcome this. And once we humble ourselves then and only then by God's grace, we will submit ourselves to God and the very very clearly stated commandments of Jesus Christ. We can resist the devil too in this fight and he will run away from us. Do you know why that is? Do you know why that is? Because number one, he will know we figured it out. The devil will run away from us when we know he knows we figured it out. It's not legalism and it's not friendship with the world and we figured it out. And number two, he sees us tugging our rope in the strength that God provides. And when the devil notices that we're figured it out, we know the truth now and now we're pulling in the strength of God He's out of there. That is not a battle he wants. But just as we said last week, this is a serious problem. It's serious enough to keep keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody will mock God by saying, I love you, while we cheat on him as a practice of our lives. And unless we recognize this and we seek God for forgiveness and for repentance, we're going to continue in this really bad, evil problem of adultery We're going to flirt with lining up against God on the last day as the eternal teams are chosen. And I can't have anybody that I love be flirting with that. So let's take the spirit of this lesson as a very encouraging thing. The Lord, even though this is uncomfortable and long, and I know it's it's really hard to swallow, the Lord is calling out our adultery now instead of judgment day when it's too late. Because he loves us. And he wants us to be healed and he wants us with him for the rest of eternity. We have that kind of God. He wants to do what's ever necessary to get us back so that we can be with him forever. And just like Hosea did with his unfaithful wife, God wants to restore us. He wants to even woo us back to himself so he can love us forever and we can love him forever. Because he knows the world that tempts us every day to love it and chase it and want it, is unfortunately going to let us down and let us down hard. If we stand on the last day next to the world, the world will not only not do anything for us, it will damn us as we line up against God. Here today, I I want you to search out your heart. I want you to make absolutely sure that Jesus is the one who has your heart, that your life has been submitted to him and his commandments, which are all about love. It's all about love. And if you understand that, and if you've given your life to Jesus, I want you to get out there this Christmas season and well beyond. And I want you to love others as Christ has loved us, because that, that alone, is the tried and true Christianity. It's not legalism. It's not friendship with the world. It is sacrificial Christ-like love for our neighbor. Let's get out and let's do that this Christmas season. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our humility. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our seriousness and our faithfulness in this battle. Or as the old hymnist said, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Can we pray? Father, I ask for your help even now. I know this is a long, intense, awkward sermon Not one I really looked forward to, but Father, but I know it's one I need to hear in my heart. And I know it's one many here probably need to hear as well. And I just pray that you'd help the seed that has been planted now take shape and grow into something that would please our Lord. If this is the time we need to finally say to you, I'm done with the world. I'm done chasing the world and its stuff and its treasures. And I want Christ to have all of me. Maybe today would be that day for someone here. Father, I want you and I want Jesus to know that I want to be faithful to you. And I want to lead others in that faithfulness as well. But Father, we need your grace and your strength and your power and your wisdom in order to do that. And so we ask for today, for this church, for this season, help us remain faithful to our Lord Jesus and to pull in this tug of war against the flesh with your strength, and we will win if that happens. We thank you and praise you for this lesson. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.